Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio and our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm Louis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. This week, there's been a flurry of agreements on negotiations between districts and teachers' unions over what distance learning will look like this fall, prompted in part by a tough deadline, opening day, for students and teachers. That's coming up as early as next week for quite a few districts. You know, at the same time, there are districts that are still at odds with their teachers' unions, and that's raising a lot of anxiety among everyone, including parents and students who just don't know what to expect. So we're going to talk to a negotiator in one district who was able to reach an agreement with her district. And we'll also talk about a drive to educate students about how schools work and how to get more involved in changing them, hopefully for the better. But John, let's first talk about distance learning. That's the big issue, the big question, the big concern on many people's minds. That's going to be the reality for almost all of California's 6 million students during the coming weeks and months. The experience with distance learning in the spring was successful for some, disappointing for many, and disastrous for others, especially for those without good internet access or those with special education needs. Well, knowing that, the legislature got involved and set some minimum requirements for what distance learning should look like, but it left it up to districts to fill in the details, and that's led to a lot of hard bargaining on how best to provide a quality education. And everyone knows it's not going to be as good as it will be when students return to school. So for a district where negotiations appear to go smoothly, we are turning to San Juan Unified. That's a sizable district near Sacramento with 38,000 students and 2,300 teachers and other certificated staff. San Juan has been highlighted for its collaboration between teachers and administrators. It's got one of the more innovative teacher evaluation systems in the state. Shannon Brown is the former president and now executive director of the San Juan Teachers Association. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So, Shannon, the negotiations for the return to school and distance learning have been contentious throughout the state. How have you been able to avoid some of the contentiousness that we've seen in Oakland, Los Angeles, and, say, Sac City Unified? Well, I do think that one of the benefits is that we are starting with a collaborative, trusting relationship. So when we entered this crisis... How we came at it was together, and we identified very quickly what our shared values were. We all want a high-quality education program for students, and we want the supports for staff to be able to deliver that high-quality program. We did not slide proposals back and forth across the table, so to speak. These work groups were made up of district leaders and union leaders. We had a shared Google Doc, and we would all get on a Zoom call and together craft the side letter. And that way, we were able to talk through every single issue that got captured. And when there were points of disagreement or different perspectives, we were able to address those in real time rather than having those types of things bubble up and cause division. That must have cut weeks off of negotiations. This back and forth is what takes so much time. I think so. I think the other piece that is really important is that we didn't look at this as an opportunity to get a big win on something that we have been wanting to make progress on in the contract. We agreed that we were going to stick to what was at hand and how do we make sure we're creating the best system for everyone moving forward. 
So one of the most difficult issues has been the whole direct instruction issue and some confusion as to what actually is required by the state and the difference in instruction and interaction. How did you resolve that issue in your district and how much direct instruction will students actually be getting? So it, it does vary. We tried to consider developmentally appropriate amounts of time. So elementary has different guidelines. So how our secondary side letter is that we've created the equivalent of a modified block. So students will get three periods per day. And that way they have each of those classes two times per week. But we elongated the periods so they're 90 minutes each. Inside of those 90 minutes, 30 minutes will be synchronously delivered But in our agreement, that has a very specific meaning. And that means that the teacher will be meeting with the student in a Zoom-like experience so that it is a live interaction, not just being online at the same time. So that's one of the ways we address the, the direct instruction component is that those students out of those 90 minutes will have at least 30 minutes per period of, I guess, what you would call direct instruction. The reason that we don't talk about it as just direct instruction is because we know that one of the most important components of what happens between teachers and students is relationship building. And if we're not mindful of how to build relationships in this different environment, then we run the risk of students disengaging. So that's one of the reasons we really tried to think about how we can create meaningful relationships even though we are in this virtual setting. One of the issues is how prepared are teachers to deliver this instruction remotely? I'm wondering how much training or preparation did teachers get in your district? Because our sense is that there's been relatively little formal training and what preparation there was was very much a voluntary thing for teachers. So we don't really know how prepared teachers are across the state. One of the things that we negotiated with the district at the very beginning of the summer We agreed that we would have a cadre of teachers that went through a selection process that would create model lessons that could be utilized by grade level and content area. Those lessons, we agreed upon certain criteria that they had to meet, and those lessons will be available for their colleagues to utilize during their asynchronous time. If you think about like a flipped classroom, how you might have students watch a lesson delivered and then when you are with them in real time, that's when you can do the differentiation and scaffolding because they've already seen the main lesson. So how that relates to your question about training is this. We now have examples of model lessons for how to engage students, how to scaffold, how to make sure that you're aligning things to standards, how do you assess online, All of these are now captured in videos that colleagues can use. We also have now created templates for people to utilize that will help guide them in ways that we did not have available to them in the spring. But I know that uh, talking with some teachers in the spring, this was really tough for a lot of teachers. How confident do you think they are that they are prepared for this? I mean, this is something that's never been done before to have distance learning across the board for the entire curriculum? Well, I can tell you we're a lot more confident than we were in the spring. The critique that came forward about what happened in the spring is fair. I would say we also should have expected it because it was a crisis. So 
there was not planning. We were reacting. We were trying to figure out how to move things on, but we did not have time to really be deep and thoughtful about what we were doing. So Shannon, just because you reach a settlement amicably doesn't mean it's necessarily good for kids. To point to how this agreement will lead to quality learning for all students, and particularly some of those who are left behind, students with disabilities or students who didn't have access to internet last time. Making sure that every single kid gets every need met is something that we are challenged with when we're in person. I can't guarantee that that will happen. But what I can tell you is we are going to do a significantly better job of providing a higher quality educational experience that is tailored to meet more diverse needs. So just to give you a couple of examples. In our elementary schools, we have a minimum number of minutes of live synchronous activity with a classroom teacher. That does not include the fact that these students will also be getting live interaction from music, art, and PE teachers. They will also have special education service providers that are a part of their schedule, depending on if it's resource or speech or whatever service they need. We also have reaffirmed that designated ELD time is part of the required day. And sorry, ELD is what? ELD is English language development required by law, but it's also just good educational practice, that students also receive support specifically around language development when English is their second language. So we have affirmed that that is also part of the required program while we are in distance learning. So by clarifying the expectations, I think that's helped people realize that even though we are in a virtual environment, that we are still responsible for the services that would be provided in person. And that clarification alone has helped people see that what we're doing is moving our practice online. You know, I've heard comments that people say, oh, the teachers, they don't want to go back. There's all these negotiations and teachers are just thinking about themselves. What about the students? What about the parents? And so on. I'm just wondering, one, if you've heard those kinds of comments and what is your response? Yes, I have. I have heard those comments. I think they're all over the media and social media as well as in school board meetings. What I would say is a couple of things, actually. One, teachers care about their students. And while there is not clear evidence about how this virus negatively impacts children, we still have a lot to learn. So there is significant concern about the return to in-person instruction and what that means for not only children, but their families if they take the virus home. I also think that it is absolutely okay for teachers to be human beings and to care about their own safety and well-being, just like it is for them to care about their own families. So I think that the comments that people are just thinking about themselves in this pandemic absolutely complicates an already complex situation. The reality is that we will not get through this pandemic unless we figure out how to take care of each other. Because as long as the virus is active in our communities, we are all at risk at any time. So we should be figuring out how to work together and create that sense that if I'm safe, you're safe, and how do we keep each other that way, rather than looking at who is doing what during this time. Well, Shannon, we thank you very much for speaking with us. It sounds like you're as prepared as you can be, and I hope that you and others return to school very soon. Thank you very much. 
That was Shannon Brown, who heads the San Juan Teachers Association. We're going to shift gears now and talk about students. Earlier this month, about a thousand high school students signed up for the first Ed 100 Academy for California Student Leaders, all held online, of course. EdSource was a co-sponsor, and I moderated a panel on the history of education policy with former State Board President Michael Kirst, retired Superintendent Carl Cohn, and the current president of the California School Boards Association, Sheilanine Cruz-Gonzalez. Well, here to discuss the successful conference is its hardworking creator, Jeff Kemp, who is also the founder of Ed100, a pretty amazing education site for parents and others who want to read up on how education works in California. I encourage all of you to check it out if you haven't seen it already. Welcome, Jeff. Hello. Congratulations on the Academy for Student Leaders. Just tell me quickly, Jeff, what was the main purpose of the assembly? And then what's the main thing you learned from it? Communities decide together what they're going to do about public schools, what they're going to change. And some of the voices can be particularly potent, and those are student voices. If students have conviction about what they think ought to happen, their voice carries a lot of weight, or it can. The thought was that Ed 100 could help students become more thoughtful and credible as they approach those conversations. We thought it would be interesting to bring students together and do that work together intentionally. We involved students from hundreds of high schools around the state. And the fact that so many students were that interested in that nerdy a conference was just totally exciting to me because these are conversations at a level that really matters. These are, these are conversations at a level that can affect the choices that school boards make about policy. Jeff, just give us an example or two of what the students actually did during the day. The conference was three and a half days. There was kind of a narrative arc to the overall conference. We started off with some level setting about how the education system works, who the power players are, and what the levers are for change. Then we moved into what are some of the tools for uh, researching and learning about the education system. We got students together with different organizations that involve students and let them get a little bit of a preview so that they could make some choices later. Then we got into big ideas for education change and kind of dreams of how things could be different. And then finally, we ended with breakout sessions. Students got a chance to meet with ACLU of Southern California and CASC and the California School Board Members Association and other organizations and they had an opportunity to meet directly and start making some decisions about how they want to take this forward and be involved in their own community and beyond. You know, there's so much activism going on on so many levels and in different arenas, but we haven't seen kind of extended activism in schools. And I think one thing we've we really come to realize, or many more people have become to realize in the last few months, is that schools aren't working for lots of kids. And you'd kind of expect that there would be more activism on schools. Is, is that something you think could happen or should happen? Student leaders have a lot to say about what decisions are being made in their schools. And the system's not well set up to listen to them. 
it's a it's a fascinating problem that some of the people who are in the best position to see the issues in their school are the least consulted. I'm optimistic that this conference can help student leaders become both better informed and better connected to one another. I'm optimistic that by being more thoughtful about this and helping students understand more about the system that they're participating in, they will be more effective as advocates for change in that system. On that note, thanks for talking with us today, Jeff. Look forward to being in touch with you on these and other topics. Thank you. For a student leader's perspective of the conference, we have on the line Zachary Patterson, who is actually one of the panelists at the conference, as well as uh, an attendee. He's a junior from San Diego. Zachary has been immersed in education policy since middle school. Starting in seventh grade, he led a campaign to have San Diego Unified include a student on its board. It eventually did, and last year, his fellow students elected him the first student member of the San Diego Unified. He also has helped to create the California Student Board Member Association to create a unified voice for student board members in the state. He will be its first president. Welcome, Zachary. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you knew a lot about the basics that were offered at the conference before you went there. So what value was there in the conference to you and and how would guide you? To me personally, I think some of the nuanced specifics were really awesome from the conference. Learning about resources like Gamma, which allow you to find information about school boards, looking at bylaws and policy, which is really critical to know. I also found really helpful things like the California School Dashboard and the California Healthy Kids Survey, which are really awesome resources that you can use to reach out and find more information about your school district. I know one of the things that I really appreciated was looking and finding those youth disconnection rates in my school district, things that I can really target and point a finger to when I talk to my own board of education and say, this is how we're doing, and now I can back it up with data. So were you able to broaden your network of contacts at the conference as well? Oh, completely. That was probably, that actually was the best part. So I presented the California Student Board Member Association. I'm a co-founder along with a few other people, and Our presentation brought in almost 70 to 80 different new people that wanted to install students on their board of educations, serve on LCAP committees, or are currently student board members that were interested in getting involved. So it broadened my network and is really going to help progress this organization. Tell us a little bit about that student board member association. I don't think that people understand to what extent students can actually be on school boards. There are not that many, right, districts that have student board members. How does that happen? Yeah, there are tons of school districts out there, hundreds that do not currently have student board members. And for our viewership that doesn't know what a student board member is, so I'm an actual member of the Board of Education. At all open session meetings, I attend, I participate. I motion, I second, I cast a preferential vote, and I speak on the items just like any other Board of Education member would. And my role is really to bring forth the student perspective and to advocate for it. It's the idea that I'm the primary stakeholder in education as a student, and therefore I need to be an active participant and a decision maker when the district makes decisions on student leadership. So can you see the day coming that all districts have an actual voting member, which you aren't right now, right? Yeah, I would say that that is definitely possible. 
And that is exactly where we need to go if we want to effectively move forward and create change. I can speak all I want. I can vote with the board. I can vote against the board. I actually took my first vote in the minority yesterday evening, actually. And what I've found, though, is despite my voice, I'm still not affecting the numerical outcome of the vote. And that is by far the largest thing that would give me a voice. I'm competent enough to serve on my board of education. I work just as hard as my other board of education members. And what I think that shows is the fact that I really care enough to get a full vote. And the idea that youth aren't competent enough or the logistics are going to prohibit it are not valid reasons to stop a movement for a full voting student board member. Well, Zachary, it's been a pleasure. You've convinced us that you are hardworking and articulate. So let's see what happens in the next couple of years. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Stay well. And be safe. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.